This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. I have some friends that make life interesting because they are experts in their field. They are highly skilled, learned people. And when I get in over my head, I know I can call them and ask questions and find out information about all kinds of things. I have a question about sports, about music trivia, about movie trivia, about construction and renovation, about how things work. I have, have resources to talk face-to-face with. I don't need Google or Siri or Alexa. I can ask real people, and they can show me how things work. And, and it's amazing to connect with people in that way. I'm working on a bathroom in our house right now. I had to make a few phone calls. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm quickly finding myself in over my head. It's going well, though. I have other friends that make life interesting because they think they know a lot about things. They, they imagine themselves to be experts in a, in a, in a particular area. And it, it's fun when, when we realize together that they, they have more to learn. There is a, an, an illustration of what this looks like. A friend of mine named Mark, we were talking about leadership and, and growth and training people together. And he, he pointed me to uh, the, the model of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Here's a chart for you to kind of describe how this works. Well, for each of us in our lives, when we, when we learn something new, we go into a, a phase of, of rapid uh, growth in our understanding of knowledge. And, and it gives us a confidence level that, that exceeds the amount of information that we had. And we have this first peak in the chart it is the place where we get when we have functional knowledge of how something works, but we don't know a lot about it, but we feel really confident that we're experts in the area. And then either by studying more or by encountering a significant problem, we realize how much more there is to know about this thing than we actually know. And our confidence dips as our knowledge increases. And then as we continue to learn and grow, we gain uh, skill in the area, we gain knowledge about the area. Our confidence goes back up to an appropriate level that matches the information that we actually have. As we gain expertise, as we gain skill, everything levels out. It's also kind of a measure of maturity along this chart. When, When we think we know a lot, and then we realize there's so much more for us to discover. There's so many ways that we can grow as we gain in our understanding. Now, as an example, if you were to buy a set of Bluetooth earbuds, in the package, as you open it, you would find two manuals. One is a quick start guide. The second is a product manual. When you open up your headphones and you get the quick start guide, it tells you everything you need to know about turning your headphones on, pairing them with your phone, listening to music, you can get rolling right away. And that gives you a a confidence that you can use these headphones. You're skilled at turning them on, using them, everything's good. The problem comes when you run into difficulty. When When they disconnect with your phone or they don't pair together and suddenly you have one earbud that works and one that doesn't, then what do you do? You open up the product manual and you find in there technical specifications, detailed instructions about all the features that you never knew were in there, troubleshooting guide to help you figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. You're probably thinking, somebody bought headphones and they don't work. You're right, but that's not the point. The point is this is a great illustration of the way this process works. When you encounter this moment where you realize you don't actually have expertise and you begin discovering more, you begin moving on this scale, on this chart, learning and growing and moving. Now, we all have these moments in our lives where we get really confident about the small amount of knowledge that we have or the small level of skill that we have. And we have to come to terms with the fact that there's a lot more that we don't know. 
But there's, there's places for us to grow. There's things for us to, to add to our experience. It's an important part of life. Maybe you know someone who is stuck at this peak. They identify themselves because they feel like they have a lot of knowledge. And they, they ask questions that they already know the answer to to test you to see if you know as much as they do. They want to prove their intelligence by proving how much you don't know. Maybe they also like to use lots of big words that you wouldn't have experienced anywhere else than this small amount of study that they've done. And they are proving their wisdom and expertise and skill by proving how much you don't know. What's common for this false sense of confidence to create issues for us, and it's important for us to grow beyond those in immaturity and our understanding, especially as we encounter people. We need to be humble enough to admit all the things we don't know. And when we reach out into the lives of other people, when we begin conversations, when we, when we engage with people to help draw them closer to the Lord, one of the difficult things for all of us is to recognize the need we have to make change, to allow the Lord to make change in us, how much more we need to grow, how much more we need to, to, to discover about him. In the book of Luke, Jesus encountered a young man who was an expert in the law, uh, someone who had studied the law that God handed to Moses through the read through the first of the Old Testament where that law is described, knew it by heart, lived according to it, and yet he had some room to grow. He needed to grow in maturity. He needed to grow in his understanding of how to apply that law to his life. The story of their encounters in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. If you have a Bible you want to read with me, you can open it there. The words will be on the screen. We'll also use the YouVersion app. So if you want to open that, search for Park, under events for Parkview Finley, you'll find scripture and sermon notes in the YouVersion app. Let's begin reading in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he, said, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the question with a purpose of testing Jesus. Question he thought he knew the answer to already. What's written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now here's a conversation Jesus had. Notice with me, Jesus didn't initiate this conversation. This expert in the law stood up to test Jesus with a question. Their conversation included this, this very significant question in his life. Jesus didn't ask the question. This man brought the question to Jesus' attention. Jesus didn't answer the question either. This guy kept talking. Jesus prodded him, pointed him in the right direction. He, he stood up, asked a question, answered a question, and then finally Jesus responded. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. When we engage with people, when we begin to have interactions, intentional interactions to help draw people close to the Lord, we're not always going to be initiating those conversations. There, there will be lots of, of opportunities where people come to us to begin a conversation. There, there are times in those conversations where important questions need to be asked. We're not the ones asking questions. Other people have these heavy burdens on their heart. They have a need for understanding. They're, they're looking to grow. They're, they're, they're struggling with an idea. They're, they're feeling convicted. They're, they're recognizing the urging of the Spirit. And, and they have questions that they need answered. And they're coming to ask those important questions. Notice that these conversations don't always follow the kind of path that we want them to take. We're sometimes at the mercy of the person we're encountering, and yet God is working through all of it. God is working in their hearts and in their lives. 
And he's using us to do significant things. Now, when we talk to people, there are going to be big questions that we ask and answer. Sometimes people will have questions about our lives, about our experiences. Sometimes they'll have questions about, about beliefs, about what, what faith looks like. Maybe they'll, they'll have questions about the kind of church you attend. Maybe those questions will be a little more significant. As we, as we have conversations, we're going to encounter questions about eternity in those conversations. People are going to be asking about the future, about what happens after death, about heaven and hell, about uh, questions that, that are really pressing because they want to know. They want to know what's on the other side. They want to know how it is that we have such hope and, and confidence. And we all have questions and concerns about what happens when we die. We all wonder about what eternity looks like. Not a one of us has ever experienced eternity. And it's an unknown. And because it's unknown, it presents to us a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions, maybe even fear and anxiety, because we don't know what that looks like. When we think about eternity, we don't, we don't want to have uncertainty. We want there to be certainty. And the reality is that our faith in Jesus Christ provides us with absolute certainty about eternity. Scripture helps us gain that understanding that we accept Christ as Lord and Savior and live according to his will, that, that we have confidence in him that we can count on for eternity. Now, last week we talked about the, the reality of sin and forgiveness, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the book of Romans tells us in chapter 3. Chapter 6 continues to say, the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that, that in Christ the, those sins are, are forgiven. All those sins, even the ones that we think are negligible, the things that, that we would rather not acknowledge are in our lives, Jesus died for all of those sins. And, and when we accept him as Lord and Savior, we have confidence in that grace and forgiveness, confidence about eternity. But the questions continue to come about what all of that means. What does, what does salvation and, and eternity and heaven, what, how, do we, how do we have confidence? We have confidence by following the teaching of, of Scripture about accepting Christ as Lord and Savior, living our lives in Him and, and, and discovering the hope and confidence we have. And Scripture clearly tells us how we go about that process. It begins with our belief in Jesus as the Son of God. The Messiah, who died and rose again. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The book of Romans says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. The scripture continues to tell us about what salvation looks like. That, that belief produces a faith in us, not just that we would mentally agree the facts about Jesus, but that faith would drive us to act. We'll be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we can't see. The book of Ephesians says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And based on that faith, we would continue to accept the gift of grace from God, accepting it through repentance, confession, and baptism. In the book of Acts, there's a clear pattern of decision-making as people came to know Jesus they heard about him and believed in him, had faith in him, and they responded in a similar way all the way through each of those examples. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, a crowd came, and Peter was preaching, and they were convicted. 
they were present for the crucifixion of Jesus. They asked Peter what they should do. Here's what he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. and You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Significant moment for us to turn away from our sin, to leave it behind as we turn to the Lord. Confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Publicly proclaim our faith in him. Matthew 10 says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. So Jesus was very clear about significance of very public profession of faith. The baptism is a part of that process of salvation, not a symbolic act, a meaningful act. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter wrote about the significance of baptism. He used the, the ark that Noah was in as an example of how his family was, was floated on the, the waters, the flood waters saved from devastation. Chapter 3, verse 20 says this, in the, in the ark, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers and submission to him. Romans teaches us the significance of baptism. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, a new life in Him, cleansed by His blood, our sins washed away. And we continue beyond that decision of salvation with faithful living that honors the Lord and is genuine proof of our conversion, our acceptance of Christ. Ephesians 2 says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And our life in him, our decision to accept him, provides us with this salvation through his blood, this, this cleansing that washes away our sins and, and provides for us confidence. First John talks about that confidence. Chapter 4, it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. It's because of the love of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ, the, the grace and mercy we have, the power of his blood, that when we stand before the Lord on judgment day, all of those imperfections are washed away by his blood. Instead of seeing our faults and failures, we're stamped, marked, known to belong to the Lord. He sees the perfection of Christ in us rather than our own faults and failures, and we are made perfect by his love, by his sacrifice, by his blood. It provides us with a certainty that gives us hope for eternity, a confidence in knowing we belong. And yet, even as we think about our lives, as we think about death and, and what happens beyond. Sometimes we still have anxiety about the unknown. Sometimes we still worry and wonder. And sometimes that anxiety is caused by our own beliefs. Maybe because we, even though we read Scripture, we hear the clear description about salvation, maybe we don't agree with what we read. Maybe we were raised in a different church or denomination. We heard a different kind of process. Maybe we struggle with the, little, with the idea that we accepted Christ using a different pattern 
And now when we read scripture, we're, we're confronted with the idea that maybe there's more for us to do. Maybe we have friends or family members who accepted Christ in a different kind of church. And we're convicted to impress on them the importance of following scriptural pattern. It's important for us to have a clear understanding of what salvation means. A clear understanding of what scripture tells us to do to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. And as we we think about what it means to engage people and draw them closer to the Lord, it's important for us to define for ourselves what we believe, where, where we've, we've come from in our journey of faith, the, the kinds of things we've been taught, the, the things that we adhere to, to clearly identify where we are with our own understanding so we can compare it to what Scripture says and then make a decision about how we'll progress from there. If our lives are in line with what Scripture says or if there needs to be a change, if, if we need to follow through, if we need to add to our understanding and allow the Word of God to inform our decisions. If we're willing to honestly look at what we believe and sincerely allow Scripture to shape our understanding, we can resolve the uncertainty that surrounds this idea of eternity. We can resolve those fears and worries. This expert in the law came to Jesus with big questions about how he could be confident in having eternal life really to, to see if Jesus had the same answer that he did. And Jesus answered this expert in the law by asking about his understanding of law. His answer really is the same answer Jesus gave when someone asked him to, to summarize the, the law and the prophets, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. And notice how Jesus met this expert in the law, pointed him to answer his question according to the law. Now, it's different than what we've just talked about. We read throughout the New Testament. But before Jesus could direct this young man to understand his need for Jesus, he had to first realize the reality of the law. The, the law sets a, a high standard. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and all of your strength, wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Jesus said, do this and you will live. Keep that law in perfection and you will live. Now that's a standard that not a one of us can attain. And when we measure ourselves according to the standard of Scripture, we, we know that we fall short. We know there's no way to perfectly love other people the way we love ourselves. To, to completely love God with all of who we are. We fail. We can't love God with all of our hearts when we all have already given our hearts to so many other things. We can't love God with all of our soul when our soul is very much divided. We cannot love God with all of our strength when we're laboring to please other people. We can't love God with all of our minds when we're preoccupied with so many other thoughts and fears and anxieties. We cannot love our neighbors as ourselves when we're spending so much time pursuing our own happiness. We will fall short. So what do we do when we cannot keep the standard of the law? Well, the Old Testament, they would make sacrifices and blood would make payment for their failure. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice once and for all to cleanse us from our sins and failures, to provide for us the perfection that we cannot attain. And it's only in Christ that we have hope, that we have confidence because of his perfection. 
Now, when we have conversations with people, we're going to encounter questions, big questions. And it's important for us not only to to solidify our own thinking, to to study deeply and and to grow in our understanding of what Scripture says, but it's also important to, to determine where that other person is coming from in their own belief, in their own faith, what kind of church they were raised in, what kind of process they used to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, so that we have a place to start, so that, like Jesus, we can address them where they are and help them see their need for Him and to follow through with Scripture and complete the process maybe that they began but didn't finish. When we're asked these significant questions, it's important for us to think about why they're asking questions, where they stand, so that we can appropriately point them to Jesus. This expert in the law stood up to ask Jesus a question. He knew the law. He was obedient to the law. And his question was significant. But it was a question asked to confirm his own perspective with Jesus, to prove himself before the Lord rather than truly answering about the unknown. Verse 29, we discover more about his heart. It says he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If I love the Lord wholeheartedly and I love my neighbor as myself, then define for me, Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply to this, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this question reveals the heart of this expert in the law. Who is my neighbor? He, he was asking for Jesus to define the borders, the boundaries of his responsibility. I know who my neighbors are. I know the people who live right around me. I know my family. These people I'm already caring for. And I want to make sure that I'm doing enough, that I'm good enough, that I don't have to keep reaching into the lives of more people. I don't have to spend more of my resources, my time, and my money caring for other people. Let, let, me, let me stay in these boundaries that I'm already doing. Let me know that, that that's all I need to do. When we think about the calling of the Lord in our lives, it's tempting for us to think like this man in terms of limits and boundaries. Checking the boxes that we think we're already fulfilling rather than surrendering ourselves wholeheartedly. Instead of focusing on limits and boundaries, we should look for opportunities. We should be asking God to open our eyes to the opportunities all around us to engage with people and to encourage them to grow closer to the Lord. The expert in the law was looking to justify himself, to prove himself right, to, to, to show Jesus the measure he was already going to, to care for people in the world around him. Let's, let's define what this word neighbor means. I'm already caring for people. I don't want to engage with others. I don't want to 
go beyond what I'm already doing. I don't want to find new opportunities. I don't want to find more neighbors that live a little bit farther away. And here's the problem that, that we face with this mindset. We're tempted to, to, to do the same thing. Both at church, when we gather together, and in our community, when we reach out to, to new people. We, we come together on a Sunday morning, and sometimes we get so focused on what we're already doing about the borders and boundaries that we miss opportunities. We have our small group, our connect group. We have our Bible studies. We have the, the areas of service that we're involved in. We have people that we already know that we need to ask questions of, that we need to provide information to. We have, we have, a, we have a purpose. We have a, we have a plan. We, we come to church and we, we, we know we need to talk to a person, so we're watching for them and meeting with them and talking and having an important conversation. And as we're doing that, we're walking past people who are new. We're walking past people that we don't know very well. We're walking past maybe first-time visitors. To engage with someone we already know, missing the opportunities to connect and make people feel welcome and help them find a home among a family of believers where they can worship the Lord with welcome and care. Sometimes we even walk past people with needs, emotional, spiritual needs who are dying just to talk with someone and be able to pour out the difficulty they've faced in the last week. And because we're so focused on cultivating what we already have, we ignore the needs of the people all around us. Imagine when we go out into the community and we're so focused on the things that we have to do, on the schedule we have to keep, on the appointments that are coming, on getting the things that we need to get accomplished. And we, we move about our daily lives walking past people that we don't know very well, people with needs, the same kind of situation, and yet we are so focused We limit ourselves to the tasks that need to be done, the people we already know, and we miss opportunities to love people, care about them in the name of Christ. Now, we know what love looks like. We have this example from the Lord. We, we read in Scripture about sacrificial love. Greater love has no one less to lay down his life for our friends. We know, we know how to love, but we're really tested when we come face-to-face -face with the neighbor with someone who needs to be cared for, with someone who needs to see that love expressed. And according to Jesus, our neighbor is sometimes the person that we really don't want to engage with, is the person we really don't want to care for, the person we really don't want to have a long conversation with. When, when this expert in the law asked, who's my neighbor, Jesus told a story about a man who had been beaten and robbed and stripped and left naked in the road, humiliated. And he used a rival, a Samaritan, to be the example of what love looks like. Now, this expert in law would have had a hard time if, if the Samaritan was the one laying in the road beaten. And, and Jesus saying, you need to care for a Samaritan. That would have been difficult for him to accept. In the story, the Samaritan is the one who's the example. And this expert in the law has to humble himself and learn from his enemy of what love looks like, what God is calling him to do in his life. And what I'd like to do is to focus on the two other characters in the story for just a moment. The two other people who show up and notice the man lying in the road. A priest comes by and sees him lying there. What does he do? He walks over to the other side of the road and continues on his way. The Levite, after him, sees this man helpless, 
What I want to think about is the, the process that's going on in each of their minds. When they see this man lying in the road, what are they thinking? What thoughts are motivating them? What decisions are they making internally as they step around this huge need? Were they thinking about their schedule? All the things they needed to do when they get to their destination. I don't have time to stop for this. (laughs) I have such a big day ahead of me. Were they thinking of their own self-righteousness, their own importance? Look at this guy. I'm a priest. I'm a Levite. I have very godly things to do today. Somebody else can take care of this need. Were they worried about uncleanness? Uh, the, the idea that this could be a very sinful person. And, and by helping and touching and engaging with this person, they would have become unclean and had to go through this whole process of ritual cleansing when they reached their destination. Were they just defining boundaries pretty clearly? I don't know this man. I don't have any idea who that is. He's got neighbors. He's got family. They're the ones that should take care of him. I love my neighbors as myself, not somebody else's neighbors as myself. Let's keep keep on going. It's important for us to think about that mental process. Because whatever it was that went through their minds, it caused them to decide to keep walking. It caused them to decide that either this man didn't need their help, or he didn't want their help, or he didn't deserve their help. And it's important for us to think through that process because... It's where we find ourselves every day, seeing needs in the world around us, seeing people in the world around us. And we have this decision to make. Are we going to step in and care for this person and help point them to the Lord? Or are we going to keep walking? Are we going to decide that this person doesn't need our help? Are we going to decide for them that they don't want our help? Are we going to decide that they don't deserve our help? Those are tough questions. But think about the process. When, when, we, when we decide, oh, I'm going to open my life up. I'm going to, I'm going to engage with people. I'm going, to, I'm going to help them come closer to the Lord. We make a very specific decision about how we're going to do that. And yet, every time we encounter a new person, we begin making decisions for them. Decisions that we should never make Sometimes we evaluate what we have to offer. We think about about inviting a person to church. We think about starting a conversation with them that's a spiritual conversation. It's going to go deeper than the service. And and we start thinking about all the reasons why we shouldn't initiate. Well, what if they say no? What if they they push us away and and kind of sever that relationship? What if they they react negatively? We have this awkward tension. That's all we have to worry about? Why aren't we engaging with people? And yet, all the time, we make decisions for them. Sometimes we evaluate who we are. If we, we have the, the, the possibility of inviting them to come, come worship with us. Just come be a part of our church service. See if you can, you can grow and, and discover what God is calling you to. And yet, we, we look at people in our lives and we wonder, if I did invite them to my church, what kind of welcome would they receive when they get here? Would, would, would they feel at home or would they walk through the doors and just 
be turned away. We wonder, what kind of worship experience will they have? What's worship going to be like for them? Will they, will they like the music? Will they, will they appreciate it? Is it good enough? When we think about what the preacher's going to say in the sermon, oh, I don't know if I want to bring my friends to hear this. We wonder if their beliefs will align with our beliefs. We wonder if their personality will match the personality of the church. And all the time we make decisions for other people and we refuse to ask them to come with us. Why? Because maybe they won't like it. And we withhold from them an experience. We withhold from them hope and confidence, growth in the Lord because we decide for them. They won't enjoy it. Maybe we evaluate who the person we're talking to. Is this the kind of person who's open to God? Is this the kind of person who would be willing to to come with me? Is this the kind of person who would be uncomfortable singing out loud in front of other people or talking about things that are a little below the surface? Is this the kind of person who has needs that only God can meet? There's so many times that we decide for other people that we go through the mental process and we never open our mouths to invite them to come with us. We never initiate a conversation. Why? Because it'll be uncomfortable. Maybe they won't like what we have to offer. And so we withhold an invitation. Instead of suffering the rejection of being told no, we remove the risk. We remove the possibility of how God would work in their lives if they could encounter him through us or through our church. The expert in the law wanted to prove himself right. And so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? He wanted to discover who exactly needed his love and who it was that didn't. And the question was more about checking the box of of proving himself good enough, of justifying himself before the Lord. And as much as we learn from the the priest and Levi who walked past this man, we also learn from the expert who was asking the question of hoping to, to limit his responsibility, hoping to limit. And every time we come before the Lord and, and think we're, we're going to prove to him that we've done enough, prove to him that we're good enough, prove to him that we're, we're just and right in his eyes, what do we find? That we haven't met the standard, that we've fallen short. That good enough just doesn't cut it. But every time we come before the Lord thinking that we've attained and finding ourselves falling short, what do we find? We find love and mercy and grace through Jesus Christ that covers our sin, that covers our failure. And we depend on that mercy and love and grace as we stand before the Lord. And we remember how valuable it is to have hope, to have confidence because of that love and mercy and grace. And we're driven by that to reach into the lives of others, to draw them into the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for the challenge you placed before us. We thank you for the way that you compel us, convict us, to reach beyond ourselves into the lives of people. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that, that you would help us see our need for you, to see our need, and that you would also help us see the needs in the lives of other people. And you would help us to understand how you have placed us how you've placed this opportunity right in front of us, how you've placed these people in our lives so that we can become a representation of your love and mercy and grace so that we can be a part of helping them come to know what hope feels like, what confidence feels like in you. Thank you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.